Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 17th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our hearts and minds, O God, to the word just read, to the words to come, that they might point to the word made flesh. Jesus, the Son of the living God. Amen. They live on. Those people we loved and who loved us. The people who, for good or ill, taught us things. Frederick Buechner wrote, Although death can put an end to them, sure enough, it can never put an end to our relationship with them. And today we remember in prayer and thanksgiving the saints who paved the way, who cheered us on, and who held us up on their shoulders. Those who not only touched us once long ago, but continue to touch us today. Of course, many of us also have the more complicated saints from our past. Some who left a deep wound of rejection or abandonment, and some who left a mark that still stings from criticism or selfishness. It reminds me of this old miser who is on his deathbed. As his last request, he asked to be alone with his doctor, his lawyer, and his priest. Once they had gathered all around him, he said, I know I'm dying soon, but I'm telling you, I want to take all my money with me. So I'm going to give each one of you $150,000, and you need to make sure it gets put in my coffin. Three days after the funeral, the priest was feeling so guilty that he went to the other two and he confessed that he only put $100,000 in the coffin. The doctor said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you shared that because I've been feeling guilty too. I only put $80,000 in the coffin. The lawyer chimed in, you people should be ashamed of yourself for stealing money like that. Am I the only honest person here? Look, in my check register, I put a check in for the full amount. <laughs> Thank you. So, we are beginning a series for the month of November focused on the table. The table is a sacred space in a home. Not only are bodies nourished, but in our house, that's where the homework was done. 
The art projects were colored, cut, and glued together, and where an occasional family meeting was held. It's where we have played hours and hours of cards and board games. Especially now when the kids come home, we gather around the table for a time to relax, to recharge, to play before, pray before a meal, to laugh, tell stories, and to catch up on life. The table is a place of connection, a place where we feed our bodies, minds, and souls. I imagine that's why an empty chair at our table can hurt so much. Whether goldfish or grandchild, all organisms die. So wrote the brilliant neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi in his beautiful memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. He began writing this book after being diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Paul took his last breath just shy of his 38th birthday, leaving behind a wife, an eight-month-old daughter, and a large, loving family. Dr. Kalanithi wrote about his calling to medicine to protect life as well as a person's identity and values while seeking to understand what makes her life worth living and ultimately what makes it reasonable to let it end. He wrote, those burdens are what make medicine holy and wholly impossible. In taking up another's cross, one must sometimes get crushed by the weight. So on All Saints Sunday, we set aside some holy time to remember those loved ones who have died and now live eternally with God. Some of us perhaps still feeling crushed by the weight of this loss. The empty chair at our table is a daily reminder of the price we pay for loving others. And I know that with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, we would do well to be especially tendered with our, tender with our friends here in church, of course, but also with all of the people we encounter because we just don't know the sorrow that someone might be carrying. Have you ever thought how a single sentence can alter your life. I want a divorce. There's been an accident. There's nothing more we can do. Just a few words arranged in a single sentence can deliver a devastating blow. And from my perspective, there is no rhyme or reason as to whose table gets the empty chair. Growing up in a small town without cable or internet, we relied on fairy tales and Disney to teach us how the world works. In Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, for instance, love always conquers death. While death feels like a logical end game for wicked queens and henchmen, the act of dying usually happened off screen and was rarely mentioned by the stars who moved right along into their happily ever after. The comfort of knowing that good characters would always win is partly why the death in Bambi remains so effective. Early on, the mother is almost angelic, patiently welcoming other, other animals to come visit her new baby. But eventually, she sacrifices herself for his safety. It's a shock because you don't anticipate anyone good dying in a Disney movie. And it became a lesson in tragedy that death does not always come for a reason, 
and that our loved ones are not immune from death. This was a cathartic movie for me. When I was 11 years old, my mom took me and a couple of my friends to see Bambi at the drive-in. As you know, at the very beginning of the movie, Bambi's mother gets killed. I started crying. Of course, it's what I do. But I couldn't stop crying. I cried through that entire movie, sometimes laughing with my girlfriends at how silly this was that I can't stop crying over a dead cartoon character. It wasn't until years later when Mom and I were talking about that experience, and she reminded me that that was the summer that my mom and my dad got divorced. A little girl grieving an empty chair. So I find myself struggling with how to handle my own sadness at times, and even more with trying to figure out what to do with all of the grief and sadness and loss and suffering that people all around us are feeling. I'm grateful that we have started the healing service called Wellspring, except for December 21st when we do the longest night service. Wellspring is held on the second Sunday evening of every month at six o'clock in the campus center. It is a time and a place to invite God to help us to be well. Because like the dark woods of a fairy tale, we know that life too has its dark side. For all of you young people, mostly unscathed so far, somewhere down the road, if you travel long enough, you will experience the loss and the grief of an empty chair. And I began to wonder what God has to say, with us, say to us when our sacred spaces are shattered. Six days after Jesus has told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to be crucified, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go up a high mountain with him. Although unnamed and unstated, a high mountain is a thin place, a place that is close to the spiritual realm, a place for sacred encounters. And it is in this space where an awful lot happens to give us guidance for our broken lives and our empty chairs. With his closest friends on that mountain, all of a sudden, Jesus is bedazzled and sparkling in a way that reveals his glory within. They probably all remember Peter's words just from a few days ago. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. These men probably thought that they had hiked up that mountain and crossed right over into heaven because they then see the greatest dead people in all Jewish history, Moses and Elijah. Moses, representing the law or the first five books of the Old Testament, while Elijah represents the prophets, the second portion of the Jewish Bible. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And do you remember in Matthew 22, when Jesus told the Pharisees which commandment was the greatest in all the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And here they are, all together on a mountain, 
law, prophets, gospel. And they're joined by Peter, James, and John, representing the New Testament church leadership. This is indeed the dream team. And just when this encounter couldn't possibly be any holier, God Almighty actually speaks to them. You know, God only speaks two times in the Synoptic Gospels, clearly articulating who Jesus is. God repeats the same words from Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then in the passage, God issues a command to the disciples, to us, to the whole world, listen to him. Lord, we're listening. We listened to Jesus pouring out his love for all people, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this and remember me. We listened to Jesus praying and agonizing in the garden, suffering on the cross, forgiving those who betrayed, abandoned, and killed him. We listen to Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? After Jesus was raised from the dead, we listen to him promise to be with us always and forever to the end of the age. This abiding love, this solidarity in suffering can help us, I think, to lean into hope and healing as we sit across from our empty chairs. There is no doubt that suffering breaks our hearts, but the good news is that suffering can be transformed into something that brings life and not death. Parker Palmer writes in his book, On the Brink of Everything, that the heart can break in two quite different ways. There's the brittle heart that breaks into shards, shattering the one who is suffering as it explodes, and sometimes taking down others with it. Then there's the supple heart, the one that breaks open, not apart, the one that grows into greater capacity for the many forms of love, opening us up to the new life, the new life that comes from becoming even more compassionate with others. Ten days after his son Alex was killed in a car accident, Reverend William Sloan Coffin delivered a sermon to his congregation at Riverside Church in, North, in New York City. It began like this. As almost all of you know, a week ago last Monday night, driving in a terrible storm, my son Alexander who to his friends was a real day brightener, and to his family, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. My 24-year-old Alexander, who enjoyed beating his old man at every game and in every race, beat his father to the grave. The grieving pastor goes on to say, while the words of the Bible are true, Grief renders them unreal. The reality of grief is the absence of God. My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality of grief is the solitude of pain, the feeling that your heart is in pieces. That's why immediately after such a tragedy, people must come to your rescue, people who only want to hold your hand, not to quote anybody or even say anything, people who simply bring food and flowers, the basics of beauty and life. Friends, when the chair is empty and our pain is deep, know that God is good and we are not alone. God is with us in the suffering, not beyond us. May we find comfort in that love that never dies and find peace in the bedazzled, sparkling grace that always is.